John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. and welcome back before we get into the episode just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast and all that means is that we are way behind where i'm at in patreon so if you are loving this podcast and you need more john constantine in your life definitely go check us out at patreon.com slash planes trains and comic books and sign up for the hellblazer tier where you'll get access to the entire hellblazer library that i've recorded so far and also you get access to the exclusive episodes of the Planes, Trains, and Comic Books main podcast. So if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today we are reading Hellblazer number 33. And just a little catch up on what's been going on. We recently finished the Family Man storyline where John has to take on a serial killer named the family man who kills entire families of people. And uh, in that, John's father died, so we had a one-shot after that arc about John and his dad getting some closure on their crappy relationship when he was growing up. And then uh, then we had a, a kind of an interesting issue last week where uh, John had to fight a dog that was possessed by the soul of a man. And of course, that possessed dog was eating people and stuff, so... That's why John had to fight him, and after John wins the battle against that dog, uh, we are left with a rat that has red eyes in the junkyard. I don't know if it ever continues from there, but it looked like the man's soul possessed the rat now. And that's where we left off. So with this issue, we get the cover here. Uh, it is an interesting cover. After reading this issue, I'm not sure what the cover has to do with it. Like, the last issue had a dog on the cover, so, oh, okay, he fights a dog. And this one... It looks like John is crouched down in like a kneeling fetal position and it's the position if you were taking if you were like trapped in a corner and there was two walls on either side behind you and uh, you know you were scared but there was no wall behind him so he's he's pushing against something but it looks like there's a bunch of people or ghostly figures behind him that he's pushing against and he's looking towards the reader as he kind of hides his face with the other hand and in the foreground, it looks like there's some kind of rib cage, is what it looks like to me. But they're not like nice and neat, so I guess they could be like bent up pieces of wood or something as well. And also on the cover, we can see that the writer is Jamie Delano, as usual. And there's two artists on this book, uh, Dean Motter and Mark Pennington do the art. So we start off the first page with uh, John is sleeping in. It's a it's a lazy Sunday today, and we get some narration uh, that is over a couple different panels of like television channels being switched there's like a news report then there's cartoons then there's an interview with maggie thatcher and then a toothpaste ad and over that is some narration saying sometimes the interference gets unbearable the pictures distort there's too much noise sometimes you just have to rest sometimes you have to switch it off and then we get some panels of john constantine waking up and it says Later, you wake in the soft percussion of bubbles bursting deep inside your head as tiny tensions dissipate. It is a new day. Nothing has changed, but everything is different. A touch of warmth caresses your cheek. Outside, a bird calls with elegant simplicity. And then John gets out of bed and uh, looks out the window at the nice sunny day, and the narration continues. 
You rise and look out. It is as if your whole life before has been a dream of confusion, but now there is clarity. There is an invigorating freshness to the air. You sniff like a hound at the tantalizing scent of optimism. So with this being a nice new day, John gets ready and gets dressed to go outside on his usual walk uh, to the corner store where he gets cigarettes and newspapers usually. And today he is definitely taking the time to smell the roses or <laughs> appreciate life or whatever. Uh, and so as he's walking uh, after he leaves his apartment, the narration continues. You see fresh buds softening the brittle extremities of trees and subtle green pointing up cracked concrete. Then he sees a child on a stoop and she's feeding some birds. And the narration continues. You see a child's delight in giving and think. Perhaps it's not too late to live. That, for today at least, the earth still keeps its promise of tomorrow. And as he's having these nice thoughts, uh, some cynicism starts to creep into his, his mind and uh, he tries to push it out because today is not the day for that. The narration says, but you ignore it. No plague or contradictions is going to ravage the rarity of this mood. Today is a holiday, a Sunday. And in the city, Sundays are different. And that is actually the title of this issue, Sundays are different. And as I said before, John is walking to his usual corner store. And as he walks in, he's greeted by the man at the counter who, of course, knows who he is. He sees him every morning. And the guy, you know, he's, he's kind of gruff. But he's definitely saying, like, oh, let me get your normal, like, 60 packs of cigarettes <laughs> and, uh, and the newspapers. You need this one and that one. And John just says to him, it's amazing how a calm month and a few good breakfasts can alleviate the misanthropic condition, isn't it? And the guy behind the counter just kind of pauses and stares at him for a second and goes, you're on drugs, ain't you? And then he continues to gather the things that John normally wants, like the cigarettes and the newspapers. And then John says, not today. I'll just have a bag of apples today. And the guy's like, apples, right. <laughs> and as John leaves, the guy at the counter kind of walks out with him. And you just see John saying, have a nice day, which I'm sure he's never said to this man the entire time he's gone here. And the narration says after that, perhaps you feel a little giddy, intoxicated, but you are relaxed, secure in the strength of your mood. Given the capacity for happiness, who would not exercise it? So once John leaves the store, he goes and just keeps walking. And I guess he's kind of just having a nice stroll on a Sunday. And he, as he's walking, he's going through different parts of town. He's seeing kind of more and more annoying or horrible things that he would normally be very cynical at and have very pointed thoughts about. But this time, he's kind of pushing everything in the background. Some of the things he's seeing are like a wall with graffiti with like a swastika painted on it. And then there's a big billboard that says British nuclear fuels over a nice serene picture of a family in a field with the sun rising behind them. John even waves to, to a local priest who's like saying bye to the people that are leaving church. And over all these kind of triggering areas that he would normally be having very angry and negative thoughts about, the narration says, if you can shut all that corrosive dementia out, reduce it to background noise, choke it off, then why not do it? If the world can be as we are able to imagine it, you think, why not imagine it in a pleasing form? Instead of assaulting ignorance with cynicism and scorn, why not embrace it? Ignorance is bliss, as they say, and the world has been a little short of bliss. And then he reaches a park and he begins to just kind of hang out and look at the families playing and the nice day it is. 
And as he's watching these families, the narration says, you feel a sadness, but it's only the gentle, reassuring tug of nostalgia. Perhaps this is how you know that you are getting old, that you've done enough damage. Perhaps this is how you know that it is time to retire from the race, to sit back and grow children safe in a walled garden. And then that cynicism begins to creep up again, and the narration says, you laugh at your own sentimentality, but the thought's trace lingers for a while, seductively, cruelly, but you walk on. You are strong today, resistant to any atmospheric change, accepting that you have the choice. So as John leaves the park, he kind of goes down some stairs and happens to walk by a house that is for sale. And there's a couple on the porch of this house, and it looks like they just bought it. And as John walks by, he sees the husband and he recognizes the man. And he must know him from his punk rock days because he just walks over and he says, Well, strap me vitals. Destructo vermin, I mean, Martin Peters. How the devil are you, mate? So John must have known him from the name Destructo Vermin, which I'm assuming is his punk rock name. And this guy definitely has an interesting look. He, uh... <laughs> He's like a skinny white guy who has long black hair that is in a ponytail. He's got glasses and he's wearing like a super bright yellow shirt with some chains and jewelry around his neck. And there's like a really brown jacket, like super dark brown jacket that's got uh, like orange highlights around the collar. And then there's an orange cross on his right shoulder that is sewn into the jacket as well. So as John walks up to him, he shakes Martin's hand. And Martin doesn't seem very uh, happy to see John. He's got like a weird look on his face. And he's like, John? Uh, hello. Actually, I'm back under my real name now. Patrick McDonald. Feels more honest, you know? And it's funny that he should talk about honesty because he's got a look on his face. And the way that he said his name is actually Patrick McDonald uh, is kind of suspicious. But John doesn't really seem to pick up on that. And uh, he just continues. He's like, honest? <laughs> Last time I saw this bloke, it was in 82, start of the Falklands War, and he was selling Nuke Buenos Aires sweat t-shirts on the street. And Patrick's kind of like, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. And then John kind of throws a question out of nowhere and says, and what happened to that video of mine you were going to promote? And this seems to be why Patrick is uh, anxious around John or nervous. Uh, apparently, at some point in time, he had made a videotape with John. I'm not sure if it's of like early magic with John or some kind of music video that he was making, but it seems that possibly back then John thought this was going to be his big break and apparently Patrick just took the tape on his own and left John hanging. And it seems like now Patrick is actually very like sad that he did that and he says, believe me, I feel like shit over that. But that was the 80s. We were all crazy then. Things are different now. Everything's changed. These days, I can feel good about myself, thanks to Elise. And the woman who's been standing by him that we haven't met yet, uh, he pulls her close, and we find out that's his wife, and her name is Elise. And so they get some formal introductions. We get some interesting art where it looks like, I don't know, she's mesmerized by John or something. The way they draw her face kind of seems like either she's super innocent or she's just immediately into John. So they talk for a little bit more. The introductions, you know, go on. And it's funny because Elise is kind of hanging on John's arm and we see Patrick kind of look like, hmm, all right. And <laughs> he's kind of putting his hand over his head like, oh, shucks. And, <laughs> and uh, but Elise continues the conversation and even invites John to have lunch with them. And upon hearing this, Patrick's like, uh, 
Yes, yes, of course you must. And after this, he does say like, oh, he's just being hesitant because he feels guilty about leaving John and the tape and everything in the 80s. So as the reader, we're not really sure if he's being sincere and everything is okay and the awkwardness is just from past history stuff or if he just really doesn't like John from before and is now like, oh shit, I got to deal with this guy. I should also say that uh, in the in the panels where they're going in the car to go to lunch, the artist has put panels or people in the foreground uh, that are showing some like side things going on. I'm assuming it's like, look at the trash and the stuff going on that he's ignoring. So... Uh, there's like a man looking through garbage for food is what it looks like. And then uh, there's like another person throwing cigarettes on the ground. So I'm assuming the commentary is that, you know, while John's off in his ignorance is bliss day, the bad stuff is still going on. People are still in poverty and the planet is getting littered on. So there's definitely like a commentary that is going on in the comic underneath all this dialogue and the meaning of these people. So John Patrick and Elise arrive at the restaurant and this is like a place John would never be caught dead in. It's super fancy, at least for him. And, uh, you know, he's sitting outside. There's some like really bright colored umbrellas. And it's just definitely not his scene. And Elise is telling him, oh my God, you have to try the spinach souffle. It's so good. And when they sit down at the table, Patrick orders a giant bottle of champagne for them because they're celebrating. So the champagne is brought and they begin to have a nice lunch. Uh, <laughs> although I will say they, the way they draw John is very like, I don't know, plasticky or something like it, it's super creepy faces that John's making or that they're drawing on him. It kind of looks like John is being forced at gunpoint to smile. <laughs> Maybe it's like a Terminator two thing where <laughs> he doesn't smile very much. So everything seems forced when he does. So as they're talking, we get a little bit of dialogue about it being the new decade and the world's going to be different now because it's the nineties. And Patrick puts forward the theory that the 90s are the new 60s. So all the hippies from the 60s that were all idealists but didn't have any like structure are now old enough to have the same ideals, but they now have organizational skills to really make stuff happen. He says, a lot of people who formed ideals back then have grown up through the disillusionment of the 70s to be revolted by the crass commerciality of the 80s. Now we're looking for a sustainable future with more value." The 90s are going to be the good parts of the 60s applied with a new maturity. And John seems kind of unbelieving at the possibility that people could be, you know, more mature. And he says, sounds attractive, but things are rarely that simple. And then Patrick says, I'm a partner in a boutique. We're selling loads of ethnic stuff, crystals, natural dyed clothes, earth colors. It's really exciting. And the people who shop there are so aware. And this actually seems like the beginning of a sales pitch to John. Like Patrick and Elise are running a con game on him. And it seems like this maybe because like Elise just literally sees someone that she says is her like partner in the boutique business. And so she just leaves. And then Patrick tells John that he's seen the light that Elise has shown him the way. And he tells John that this has been great talking, but they should carry on and John should come with him while he goes to a ATM in town. And they just leave Elise there, which is super weird. But Patrick kind of goes on like a rant about how awesome the future is going to be. And he says, before long, it'll be like this every day, not just Sunday. The cities are dying. Soon only archaeologists and tourists will come here. All this will be as irrelevant as the pyramids. Everybody's getting out, John. Everyone I know. The future is in decentralization. It's the communications revolution that's made it possible. More and more professionals are leaving the city, John. They're repopulating the countryside, voting with their feet. 
deconstructing the monoliths, computer networks, satellite links, wherever you are can be the center now. We can live in places with a quality, spiritual environment and keep our fingers on society's pulse. The global village is happening, John. And as they're driving, we're seeing like more background things happening that are kind of showing uh, while John's on his uh, ignorance is bliss journey today, uh, bad stuff still going on once again. So we're seeing like police uh, pulling over someone, but they look like they're arresting them for no reason. And there's like smog coming out of the car's uh, exhaust pipe. And even at the restaurant, we saw someone stealing the handbags of other diners at that restaurant. So as John's listening to this, he kind of throws out a uh, critique. He says, this sounds a bit like take the money and run. So it seems like John is starting to be aware, and maybe his cynical side's coming out again, that his old friend Patrick is trying to sell him something. And we also see that while Patrick is driving, going on his sales pitch, John is starting to feel a little weird. He's starting to burp, and he's like, oh, so, sorry, must be something I ate. It's almost as if this sales pitch and this fakeness are making him sick to his stomach. And that just keeps getting worse and worse as Patrick continues to try to sell John. It's almost like he's selling a timeshare because he says, you see, I've invested heavily in a project in Ireland, hence the name change. It helps with the locals. So he actually changed his name to sound more Irish in order to, uh, to help the sales. So he continues, it's a really worthwhile cooperative development on the Atlantic coast. A total living environment aimed mainly at writers and artists. They don't pay tax in Ireland, of course, but we will be contracting locally for Whole Foods. Everything's designed to rigorous, eco-friendly specifications. Solar power, waste recycling, the works, state-of-the-art communications and information technology, of course. And John's not talking at all. He's just like, mm-hmm, yep, naturally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And <laughs> so you think uh, Patrick will get the hint. And before Patrick can even finish his sales pitch, John's stomach begins to tell him, this is over, it's done with, because he grabs his stomach and he doubles over and he says, oh, my bloody guts are in an uproar. Spinach souffle and champagne must have been too much for my proletarian tastes. So John sits down to try to, you know, alleviate this uh, pain. And the fact that John doesn't feel good is not phasing Patrick at all with his sales pitch. He just continues... But what I was thinking was, we need someone to go over there and just live in the show home for a while. We'll have to wind up Elisa's business and sell the house. You wouldn't have to do anything, just keep an eye on the builders and stuff. It's really a beautiful country, John. The people are so genuine. And then John starts laughing, and Patrick's like, what, what's funny? And John says, as he's grabbing his stomach, nothing, mate, nothing. Just thought for a minute you were going to do your bit for the homeless and offer me a lifetime's lease. That's all. And Patrick looks kind of annoyed at him and he says, huh, well, um, we could think of doing some kind of discounting, but... And then John cuts him off and says, don't cry, I'm just kidding. It's really human of you, mate. You do your bit of eco-banking while I find a toilet and sort my stomach out. Then we'll communicate some more, right? So John leaves to go use the restroom, and at first I thought John was leaving because he, he sensed the BS that was being told to him, and he was trying to get away from him. But apparently, uh, in the narration, it says, You are tempted by the promise of a change. You think you might accept. Why not? It might be nice to choose a little temporary comfort, the ocean, peace to reestablish objectivity. And when you feel the warm foundation of your perfect day begin to shiver, you feel the shadows closing in. Your stomach rumbles nervously. So it seems like he was actually thinking of going along with this guy's plan. 
so something interesting about the restroom here it's a public restroom i'm assuming and there's literal like stairways like he's going into a subway to get to it um so he walks down a bunch of stairs he goes into the restroom and when he gets there there's a man who's like a janitor possibly and he looks kind of pale for a janitor i'll say and he's got a turban on and he's talking kind of weirdly he sees john and he says now there's a surprising thing a traveling man a mysterious guest you are here for the rave man or are you just passing through and john is like uh i'll tell you later i'm in a bit of a hurry just now unstable system know what i mean so john goes into the nearest stall and all the walls and the doors are, of course, covered in graffiti and scratches. And they don't say how long he's in there, but <laughs> he's in there long enough that while he's looking at one of these pieces of graffiti, it starts to morph. Now, this piece of graffiti says the word turbulence above it, and then it's a yin and yang symbol underneath. So the morphing that occurs is the yin and yang kind of split apart, and then the word turbulence begins to be misspelled. And not so you can read it, mainly like all the letters just kind of jumble up. And there are three panels where the spelling gets worse and the yin and yang move in different areas. And then the final position of the words and the yin and yang are the words saying snertalube and then the yin and yang becoming eyes and kind of staring at John. And the narration says, you start to smile at the misspelling. Later, you wonder why you were smiling. So the word later there kind of infers that uh, he was still staring at that wall for quite a while. And the narration continues, you rise and leave. Nothing has changed. Everything is different. So John makes his way out of the restroom and up the stairs again. And as he makes his way out of the tunnel, it seems to be nighttime. Like he was in there for a really long time. And the narration says, you are semi-conscious of a half forgotten purpose. Someone to meet, someone to do, a choice to make. And John is kind of looking around and he's confused and he's kind of holding his head and it says, you are cold, uneasy. You are lost, but somehow unconcerned. And then something makes a noise at his feet as he walks, and he looks down and he sees a newspaper, but the newspaper has all unreadable words in it. And I did my best to unscramble this. <laughs> I was thinking maybe it was like Zantana's uh, spells because you could just read those backwards. But no, nah, it seems like they, they moved the letters around enough that they're unreadable. So I had said it was nighttime, but it seems like the light is actually like a different world. Like, <laughs> like it says it's a monochrome hue on everything. And I actually started laughing at this point when I was reading this because I could just imagine John is actually passed out on the toilet. <laughs> His face is leaning against the yin and yang symbol on that wall. And he's having like a food poisoning trip or something. So he just kind of continues on his walk, uh, kind of not knowing what's going on. And like I said, everything's kind of shadowed and weird colored. The narration does say, nearby but yet too distant through the crowding streets to be pinned down, you hear the sounds of turmoil, breaking glass and screams. And now you see there are people here, but something strange about the light diffuses them like sunlight on a TV screen. And just for the sake of it, you pause to ask the way somewhere, although you have nowhere to go. So we see John walk up to a taxi driver and say the words, excuse me, except when John speaks, the words are not excuse me, they are all jumbled just like all the written words. Except John's words were kind of decipherable, not like the newspaper. But it's pretty much just those first words, excuse me, that I can read. The rest of them seem to not make sense and I couldn't really figure out what they were trying to say. And I think it's supposed to be like that because you're supposed to feel like John when he's here. You don't know what's going on. And then the narration says, you gag and spit out a cacophony of sound. You cannot speak. 
You are trapped inside yourself. Communication has broken down. Appalled, you reel away into a harsh and yet insubstantial world. A contradictory materiality. So upon hearing all that noise, John just takes off running. He's like, I'm getting out of here. It's too crazy. It doesn't make any sense. So once John finishes running, he kind of just walks around this area trying to make sense of this new world. And in very much dream logic, it seems like his uh, reactions and emotions are kind of like spur of the moment. So as he's looking around, he gets hungry and he's like, well, I better ask for food. So he goes to this corner stand where it looks like they're selling fish and chips or something. And just like last time, his spoken words are jumbled, but we can see that he's saying, please. And the man at the counter is yelling in jumbled language, get out. So John goes away, but then the narration says, you are tired. You try to ask for shelter. So John goes to a motel and once again, in jumbled language, John asks to stay there and the man tells him to go away. And then as John walks away from the motel, there is a punk kid with an anarchy shirt and a jean jacket and jean pants. And he's making fun of the way John speaks. He's saying like, bleh, 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 bleh. and John just looks at him and says in jumbled speech, will you? And then the narration says, you are lonely and they mock you. And so John kind of walks into an alleyway as he's disoriented and saddened by the boy making fun of him. And the narration says, you are hurt, angry, defeated. You withdraw into shadow. You grow still. You grow silent. And in the alleyway, there are people who are there that are looking through piles of trash and junk. And the narration continues. And then you realize that there are more like you. And they are moving, padding in response to their persistent tattered beat. You follow them, blissfully unaware of having any choice. So as John follows these men that were walking through the trashy area, they all pick up like something in their hands, whether it be a radio or a microwave or a toaster or a keyboard. And there's just a bunch of men that are carrying these items. And we can hear kind of a banging, a clanging, and just general noise and tumult going on. So John doesn't really pick up anything. He just follows these men where they're walking. And they take him all over the place, it seems. They go through like a tunnel and a parking garage structure. And this thing has like multiple levels. So I don't know if they walked up and then walked back down. And the narration says, you follow spiraling down unthinkingly. You are numbed by the commotion of this destructive industry. And then John sees a building that the men are walking into and they're not walking through a door. They're walking through a hole that's broken in the side of the wall of this building. And there's a really bright light inside. And then as John is like about to follow them, someone comes up behind him and puts their hand on his shoulder. And when John turns around, he sees it is the janitor from the restroom with the turban, except now he's wearing a dress and he has like a Gandalf staff from Lord of the Rings. And John asks the man what they are doing. And this time, now that he's talking to this person, his words are correctly spelled and they make sense. So the janitor responds, don't you know? They're deconstructing the monoliths, putting back what's been taken out. And then John looks at him and says, I don't understand. And the janitor says, why should you? It doesn't make any sense. And then the janitor reaches out as he speaks to John and puts his hand on John's shoulder. And it seems like he transports them to another area because the lighting is completely different and everybody is gone that was inside that building. And now it looks possibly like they're back in that parking structure or something like that because there's a bunch of pillars and concrete. And John seems kind of astounded by this. And then he says, where am I? And then the janitor says, don't ask stupid questions. In times of turbulence, that's irrelevant. You're everywhere and nowhere, baby. You should know that. You are a magician, aren't you? You are a rider on the storm, 
one who turns his coat at will, who is not trapped by ignorance of possibility, one who keeps the codes and passwords and the nerve to cross the secret borders as he chooses. And John says, I hope so, yes. And then the janitor says, I hope so too, John Constantine, because this game is dangerous if you are not. Good luck. And then we see the janitor wave his arm towards a door that has opened up in the wall. And the janitor kind of points to it with his staff. And then John walks through it. And you would think that this, you know, leads to John waking up or something, but it doesn't. <laughs> it's actually the doorway to a bar that is still in this dream world. So John just walks in, people are talking, but it's all backwards and you can't understand what they're saying. But the further and further that John walks into this bar, the jumbled conversations that were going on begin to clear up and the letters put themselves back into place. And now we as the reader can read what they're actually saying. And this is basically John's Neo from the Matrix moment or something. <laughs> like he can, he can change the reality of this area. And the narration says, nothing has changed, everything is different. You push out into the babble of compressed lives, individual worlds thrust up against each other. Then struggle through the frothy tide wishing as usual that you were somewhere far from this inanity. Somewhere you could rest in quiet solitude and thought. So then John walks up to the bar and says gin and tonic, but for a second he slips back into the jumbled words again and the bartender's like, come on pal, learn the language. But then John grabs the guy's face and says, read my lips. I said gin and tonic. And the bartender says, straight away, sir. And then John sits down while he gets his drink and the narration says, and then you sit and idly wonder where in all the world's futility is there that you would rather be. And as he sits and drinks, the people in the background, their conversations begin to go blank. You still see the speech bubbles, but there's no words anymore. It's like John is drowning out the noise in the background. And then for the first time, I think in this comic, John breaks the fourth wall and there's a panel of him looking at the reader and he winks and says, funny old day, really, as he puffs away on his cigarette. And then the narration ends with, but then this is a Sunday and Sundays are different in the city. And that is how this issue ends. It just leaves you hanging in this weird dream world. So if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can email me at planes, trains, and comic books, all one word at gmail.com. And we will see you on the next one.